Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He just published a book. Title of the book is Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage, a true story of murder in San Diego's jazz age. And his name is James Stewart. And this is a really interesting true crime historical nonfiction narrative book. I really enjoyed reading it as somebody who loves San Diego. Uh, it was really a good uh, time and place of understanding kind of San Diego. And this is James's first book, so he can talk more about it, about that. So James Stewart, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Great. Glad to be here, William. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your name or this book, can you talk kind of about your background and what led you to write Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage? It's a long story, of course, but uh, I'll keep it short. Uh, as far as my background, I I always wanted to be a writer. It was always what I thought I was best at, and I always wanted to write books specifically, but I got sidetracked from that for a long time. I ended up uh, going into the Navy as a Navy officer and spent 25 years on active duty. Um, and then when I retired, uh, I started turning my attention back to writing. Uh, it's, I always knew I'd get back to it. It just took me longer than it does some people. And uh, so I went back to school uh, here at National University in San Diego and got another degree. And this one was in English. And then I followed that up with a MFA in creative writing at the UC Riverside, uh, or actually Palm Desert, uh, low residency writing program. And uh, I needed a topic. I needed a thesis topic, of course, for a master's degree. And I was pursuing the nonfiction track. They also have fiction, poetry, screenwriting. Um, but I specifically wanted to write a, a narrative nonfiction or creative nonfiction kind of novel. Or not novel, but uh, book. And uh, so I started looking around. I wanted to write about a crime that took place sometime a long time ago. I've always enjoyed books like, say, uh, um, Devil in the White City uh, is a good example, uh, Midnight in Peking. I could give you a whole bunch of other titles, but they're historical true crimes, and they're specifically narrative nonfiction, uh, meaning that it's it's not just like a typical nonfiction book. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You tell a story. You try to tell it in scenes to the extent possible while sticking closely to the facts. So I was looking around for a, a suitable story, and I wanted it to be here locally in San Diego or at least Southern California because I knew writing about a case that was 100 or more years old would require a lot of research. And so I wanted it to be close to home. And uh, so I started looking for something like that. I just started asking around at the historical uh, societies and libraries and people I knew and whatnot. And several people mentioned the Fritzy Mann story. And what had happened was it had, uh, became uh, fairly well known around town. This was in about 2011. Uh, a local historian and writer named Richard Crawford had published a short piece in the San Diego Union Tribune newspaper about this case. It was a few pages long, uh, but it piqued a lot of people's interest in the story. And when I was asking around about it, 
everybody had heard this story. And so um, I started looking into it. Uh, one of the things that really piqued my interest was at the San Diego History Center when I asked the young woman who worked there said, oh, you mean San Diego's Black Dahlia case? Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's how she referred to it. And it kind of had that feeling of, uh, of an old San Diego case, a mystery, uh, unsolved, uh, that a lot of people were interested in. And so I started looking into it. Uh, you know, she pointed me in the right direction. And I started looking into it. And I found out that it was very famous in its day. Um, you know, 1923, uh, January, um, when she uh, went missing. And uh, it had all the right elements I was looking for. I could do the research because it was a local story. Uh, I managed to find the trial transcripts. This case went to trial, which is kind of another criteria for this kind of story, because that provides a lot of information for putting the story together, which you don't have in some, you know, very interest, otherwise interesting cases. And then also uh, it was widely covered in the newspapers uh, from day one in San Diego, but also the major papers in LA hyped the case. And it had all the right elements for that. Uh, she was young, uh, very beautiful, a dancer, uh, what they called interpretive dancing, which was kind of a big thing there. And she was known around town for her dancing and had been uh, in a lot of different venues. Um, and she was found on uh, Torrey Pines Beach, at the time a very lonely beach. Um, and uh, it, the circumstances of her death were very mysterious. So it was the kind of story I was looking for. And, and I meant... I'm sorry. Oh, well, I was just going to say, if people are on YouTube, you can see a picture of the victim right here on the cover of your book as well. And she's in her kind of dance regalia, very kind of a flapper age. You mentioned a lot of the clothes of that era, too. So she was kind of part of that jazz age, right? That's exactly right. She was uh, a young woman of her times. You could look at it that way. I wouldn't go so far as to call her a flapper. Um uh, but she was certainly independent-minded. She was pursuing this career on her own. Um, and so, uh, you know, when she dressed the part, you know, she was, you know, the, the clothes she was wearing when she left was kind of a flapper's outfit. It was a fancy, uh, you know, party dress kind of thing. So, uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, that was why I picked this story. And... I became fascinated by it because as far as for a narrative nonfiction kind of book, it had not only, not only was it an interesting uh, unsolved mystery, uh, but it was also very much about the place and time, you know, Southern California, San Diego and LA, because a lot of the uh, investigation took place in Los Angeles area. Um, and, you know, it had all the right elements. You know, there was the yellow journalism of the time where sensation mattered a lot more than fact. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. uh, so that was really big then. So they tended to hype these cases. And that was actually a big part of the story because when those cases got hyped, the facts of the case got distorted. And what she was all about got distorted. And... Uh, uh, you know, that's it's an old story, but it was really big there in the early 1920s. 
Right, and you mentioned William Randolph Hearst in part of the book uh, who was coming through San Diego, but he was probably one of the biggest purveyors of that or the beneficiaries, really, of that type of journalism. Uh, yeah, yes. Can, and can you kind of go back through, I mean, who was this, who was, uh, was it, man, what was her first name, Mitzi Man? Fritzy. Fritzy, yeah, Fritzy. Yeah, yeah uh, she came from an Im immigrant uh, Jewish family. Uh, they had immigrated when she was seven years old uh, from Bosnia, Sarajevo, Bosnia, was where they came from. And uh, she was seven, and she had a sister that was two years older named Helen, and she had a brother named Williams who was four years older. So the children were all still young. And then her mother, Amelia, and her father, Isor, I-S-O-R, um, they immigrated here in 1910, came over on a ship, just like you know the, the immigrants from Europe did in those days. And they stayed briefly with some relatives in Nashville, Tennessee, but they went on almost immediately from there to Denver, Colorado. And it took me a while to figure this out, but they didn't pick that place out of a hat. They out of a hat. They didn't have relatives there, but it was kind of known as the World Sanitarium, or Sanatorium, whichever you prefer. Uh, her father, Esor, was suffering from tuberculosis. And that didn't come out when he came over here, but he, he was uh, afflicted with it. And at the time, tuberculosis was a huge scourge. I mean, it was, it was what everybody feared at the time, communicable disease. And, and a lot of uh, people came down with tuberculosis. So that's why they went there. And there was also specifically two sanitariums for uh, Jewish consumptives, as they called them. You know, they call the disease consumption back then because it kind of consumed the person's body as they wasted away over a period of years. Terrible disease. And so that's why they went there. You know, you got the high mountain air, it's dry. Uh, you know, it was advertised as that. But he ended up dying 10 years later in 1920 uh, from tuberculosis, finally. And her, his, um, his wife, Amelia, decided to move to San Diego. And the reason was once again tuberculosis. Her, her older daughter, Helen, who at the time was about 20 years old, 21 years old, also had contracted tuberculosis. And, you know, Denver didn't cure her husband, so she hoped San Diego might cure her daughter. So that was why they ended up going there. You know, San Diego had going for it. It's a desert on the ocean. You know, had the fresh ocean breeze all the time. It was right on the desert. So it was dry and beautiful weather most of the time. So that was why they came here in the first place. Um, right. And you, I think you said at the time when they were there, it was only 80,000 people in San Diego. I mean, it's yeah, roughly, as best I could tell, based on the records I could find, uh, there might have been, say, 115,000, 20,000 in the whole county, which was a huge county and is a huge county. Um, so, yeah, it was San Diego at the time was, you know, relatively speaking, a backwater. You know, it was a small city and uh, it, it had, you know, the the uh, um, tourism trade was starting to, you know, heat up then in the 20s, teens and 20s. 
but it still had a long way to go. And it, it, it began growing rapidly from this time on. Um, but at the time, it was, to give you a, an idea, Los Angeles was about 10 times the size population-wise of San Diego. So, um, you know, L.A. was already a big city and obviously growing very fast. San Diego started growing fast, but it had a long way. And, of course, it never caught up. <laughs> but it's now the eighth uh, largest city in the country by population. So, uh, you know, obviously it, it grew a lot. But back then, it was relatively provincial. Um, and Fritzy had trained as a dancer in Denver under a former ballet star who had danced with uh, Anna Pavlova's group around the world uh, as a ballerina. Um, Pavlova being probably the most famous, you know, ballet dancer in history. And her mentor, her name was Domina Marini, uh, who is now completely forgotten. But for a while there, she was relatively well known. And she had settled in Denver. And then Fritzi and her sister, Helen, both trained under uh, Marini. And uh, it was not only ballet dancing, but it was also interpretive dancing, which was really becoming hugely popular by this time. Most people have heard of Isadora Duncan. She was an interpretive dancer. Uh, and then there was another famous uh, uh, woman, uh, Ruth St. Denise, or St. Denis. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. But she was very famous during the time Fritzy was training and, and dancing interpretive dance. So it was a really big deal. And so... It was kind, of like, came... it was kind of like avant-garde. So she was really kind of on the new edge of dance, right? Absolutely. It's a precursor of modern dance. You know, a lot of the the modern dancers, when you hear that term thrown around, you know, mostly in the 20s and beyond, uh, were, were doing interpretive dance amongst other types of dances. But uh, uh, so, it, yeah, it, it was a precursor to modern dance, if you want to look at it that way. They tended to wear exotic uh, costumes. They did a lot of Middle Eastern and Asian or back then, as they called it, Oriental. And it was relatively skimpy outfits. If you see the one there, there on the book cover, uh, that's pretty risque for the times. Um, and that was typical of interpretive dance. So in some, you know, for conservatives, traditionalists, obviously they didn't like this very much. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, they, it had a pejorative term. They called it oriental dancing or exotic dancing. And there was nothing overtly, you know, sexual about it uh, or burlesque. It actually, I see that somebody made a comment there. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it might be somewhat similar to that, but they didn't do strip teases or anything like that. They, uh, they just did these traditional ethnic kind of uh legends and that sort of thing from the Middle East and Asia mostly. And it was also, interesting, sorry to interrupt, but at that yeah. time it was interesting because that was very fashionable, right? Valentino and you know, I think there was the movie The Sheik or whatever. So oh, that yes. was kind of fat, very kind of edgy cultural was to have those kind of uh, Middle Eastern themed stuff. Yeah, and that's it. That's exactly right. The the Sheik, which came out in 1921, Valentino's, that's the one that really propelled him into superstardom. 
it was a hugely popular movie put out by the the largest studio famous players lasky and uh that actually comes into fritzy's story later on but hollywood had a huge influence on popular culture way more than it does now i mean you just think it has a a lot of influence now back then it was you know like half the population went to the movies every week and that increased to like 75 or 80 percent by the end of the decade so uh, old hollywood was big silent hollywood was big that's the all they had right that was their only choice well exactly <laughs> they, they didn't have the internet they didn't have anything they have radio was just getting around in the early 20s so uh uh, yeah, that, that's what they had. They could go to the movies or they could go to live dances like what, what Fritzy did. And sometimes they even combine the two. And uh... so, so anyway, she, go ahead. So she was kind of like a, a dancer for uh, events or what stag parties you said one. So she I mean, not as a stripper, but as kind of an edgy avant garde dancer. right? Yeah, it, it, it ran the gamut. I mean, the first thing she was in was like in January of 22. A few months after she got there, she was in probably one of the biggest things that she ever did. It was at one of the largest theaters in town called the Colonial at the time. Uh, it was long ago torn down, but it was one of those things, huge old theaters. It was being converted to a movie palace at the time. And she took part in a week-long program, and she danced the finale. So obviously, she had a reputation. She had brought a letter of introduction from Denver with her, uh, presumably from her mentor, and that helped her get uh, involved in the show. And that that was a big deal at the time. Um, so uh, and then, but it ran the gamut. You know, she did small, much smaller venues a lot of the time, uh, like at a country club. You know, with three or 400 people, maybe, you know, she even did like a sailor's a chief petty officer's stag party, as they called it in, in the paper. Uh, and that sounds like it could be, you know, <laughs> salacious entertainment, but it wasn't, it was uh, a lot more uh, uh, innocent than that. Yeah. Sedate than that. But, you know, of course, obviously, you know, she was a, a good looking woman, and in great shape from the dancing and so yeah i mean men liked looking at her and she was very popular so and that figures into the story right because once she is found you know there's a lot of possible people she was mixing around and, and moving to la too right so she was moving up to or working in la i should say yeah late in the year 1922 she had been dating a couple of different men one of them seriously and then the other one after she broke up with him uh, for a while there. And then in November of 22, she went to, to LA uh, ostensibly to work. And apparently she did do some uh, uh, performances there. She stayed there for almost two months, right up until one week before her death. She was in the LA area and it became one of the central mysteries uh, early in the investigation about what was she doing up there? And uh, so anyway, uh, in January, it was actually January the 14th, 1923, uh, her mother had noticed that she was acting strange, um, out of character, being very secretive. She said she was going to what she termed a house party in Del Mar, <laughs> you know, which is a resort right up uh, north of San Diego here. 
And but she wouldn't be specific about it. She she said a man from L.A. was picking her up, but she wouldn't give his name or anything about him. And she'd never done that before. So it alarmed her mother. She knew something. Fritzy was up to something, but uh, she didn't know what. So she kept telling her mother, not worry, uh, I'll be home by the next day or I'll call. And uh, so she left home in the evening of the 14th, which was a Sunday night. And then the next day, uh, around noon, a family was on a little trip to San Diego and they stopped by Torrey Pines Beach uh, for a picnic, you know, just to have lunch. And a little boy, nine years old, went, you know, running out onto the beach when they first got there and uh, found her body and uh, came back up, told his father. And then from there, the cops were called and, and started doing an investigation. She was dressed, you know, like just in stockings and, you know, pumps and a, and a teddy. And that was what all she was wearing. And uh, her dress was relatively nearby or what they took to be her dress. And it, it did, in fact, turn out to be her dress uh, was nearby in the sand. And uh, uh, when they first looked at the scene, um, they were pretty flabbergasted. They couldn't tell what had happened. Um, you know, you assume in San Diego when somebody is washed up on a beach, presumably drowned, uh, that it's an accidental drowning because that happens very often here, obviously. So. But it started looking a lot more suspicious uh, than that. And they found um, up the, uh, the beach, about 500 yards away, they found a handbag and a vanity case that Fritzy had left home with. So it looked like somebody had tossed him out of a moving car. So that was suspicious. And she didn't get to that beach on her own. So at least one other person knew what had happened to her but they figured it was either a suicide or it was homicide. And, but they kept going back and forth. Right. And at that time, Del Mar was, was actually not very well populated, right? That's correct. It was, it was pretty a lonely beach, especially on a Sunday evening in January. Uh, you know, uh, even in San Diego, it was chilly that night and the water was ice cold. So that was one reason why they kind of uh, uh, ruled it out. Yeah, I see somebody mentioned there her shoes were on, which is also suspicious, right? Because if you've been tumbling around in the uh, the uh, surf there for overnight or for hours, many hours, your shoes probably wouldn't be on, especially if you waited out there. That her teddy was relatively undisturbed, you know, and the the stockings and whatnot. So that was another thing that led them to think that something's wrong about this scene. It looked kind of staged. Some people even said that her arms were crossed across, you know, crossed over her chest, um, you know, kind of like a sleeping beauty kind of pose. It was an unusual pose to find a drowning victim. So these were all suspicious things. Uh, later on that day, I'm sorry. No, please continue. Yeah, she was taken to a funeral parlor. The coroner delivered her body there. That's what they did then. The you know they did, the uh, coroner did not have his own uh, facilities, and so any autopsies that needed to be done were done in funeral parlors. You know, so when his autopsy surgeon got there, this was like five in the six in the evening uh, that Monday. Um, the funeral director, or as they called him then, the undertaker, had already drained most of the blood from her body 
in the process of embalming her body. Apparently, he didn't get the word that an autopsy was required. Um, so obviously, that <laughs> that creates a problem. And uh, but during the autopsy, he determined two major things. The autopsy surgeon one is that she did in fact drown, and two that she was about four months pregnant, four to four and a half months pregnant, which immediately caused this story to, you know, to really take off because that's a big scandal then. 20-year-old, uh, single woman, huge scandal then. So um, they also found over her right eye, there was a bruise that could have been caused by, you know, maybe somebody knocked her out and threw her in the water, you know, something like that. So it was ultimately ruled a homicide. Um, and uh, that's how they, the, the cops investigated it. Although for weeks and even for the rest of the case, pretty much, whether she committed suicide, you know, she had been despondent. She was four months pregnant. Uh, the man who had gotten her pregnant had refused to marry her. Um, so uh, she was despondent. And uh, so in a lot of women in those circumstances, seeing they really didn't have any choice, the man would refuse to marry him. What are they going to do? They're going to be ostracized. And her career would have been over for sure. And uh, so she had reason to be despondent. But there were all these other things that looked very suspicious. And whoever got her pregnant also had a motive. It was also much more common then reason for homicide back then when a woman got pregnant and man didn't want to marry her, but then she threatens to, uh, you know, expose the scandal. So two, two men uh, filled the role immediately of suspect. Uh, one of them was an actor she had dated briefly the previous fall, as it turns out, around the time she got pregnant. And uh, he was he worked for a small company. His name was Rogers Clark. Big, tall, good looking guy. He had just kind of started in, uh, in, in the film industry or was trying to get a foothold in it. But he was also known as a ladies man. So he dated a lot of different women around this time. And then the other one was a doctor named Louis Jacobs. And Fritzy had been dating him for some months the previous year up until the time almost when she started seeing Rogers Clark and possibly a few other men uh, at one time or the other. Um, but uh, her he, family thought they were thought when she turned up dead, her brother and mother were saying Rogers Clark or right. They, yeah. They didn't like him. Her mother, his, her mother specifically didn't, didn't like him. He, she thought that he was a, um, you know, a playboy and, you know, he was wealthy. Uh, he had uh, a Marmon touring car, which was, had a lot of cachet then. And he would just show up to pick her up and honk his horn, you know, kind of summon her to come out to and join him kind of thing. You know, and this was new dating was a new thing there before that, <laughs> you know, if you wanted to, to date a young woman, a man had to call on her at home, you know, where her parents were. But in the early 20s, with things loosening up, with prohibition, with partying and drinking in the, the jazz age and dancing and all that sort of thing, 
dating got started because this was a point where a lot more people could afford cars. So that's how it happened. The man would come pick the woman up and take her out on a date. And so that was really brand new at the time. Right. So, I think you said that, uh, was it F. Scott Fitzgerald bought that same car after yeah. he money for this side of paradise or something? That's yes. right. Yeah. But you can just envision that too. And I think there's a picture of that car too in your book, right? So there's something suspicious about what was going on with that vehicle because it had evidence of an accident, right? That's correct. At, at the beginning, within the first three or four days of the investigation, both of these guys looked like they could equally be guilty. Neither one of them had a good alibi. Uh, as it turns out, they both had a motive because they could have been the father uh, or a potential motive. And uh, and in the case of Rogers Clark, he didn't come, even though his name was in the papers because her mother screamed his name at the funeral parlor, you know, uh, his name was all over the papers, but he didn't step forward and come see the cops. So that was suspicious to them. And finally, it wasn't until Thursday, you know, uh, three days after her death, three to four days after her death, that he was arrested in, by the LAPD um, where he was staying in Los Angeles. And his car, this Marmon touring car, looked very suspicious. You know, it looked like it had had a collision, uh, possibly. There was blood in the back seat. It looked like somebody had tried to clean it up. The gauges on the dashboard had been smashed. So this was very suspicious to the detectives. Uh, the chief of police in San Diego, a man named James Patrick, actually took the train up to interview Clark for the first time. And he was very suspicious about him for all these reasons. Plus a couple of the people that Clark had tried to use as his um, uh, alibi for the night of Fritzy's death. Admittedly, he was in San Diego that night, um, but a couple of the people that he uh, used as his alibi refused to be his alibi and said, no, it's not true. Okay. And then Dr. Jacobs had been, you know, he claimed that she had come to him on the Friday before her death. That was the last time he saw her, he said, and she told him that she was pregnant and that she was secretly married to an actor and that uh, she asked him to perform an abortion. Um, he refused. This was illegal at the time, abortion and even birth control was illegal. So this was his story. In fact, he actually had walked into Chief Patrick's office on his own initiative saying, I know the dead girl. This was the day after her body was discovered. I know the dead girl. I want to help you clear up the mystery. I saw her on Friday night. She was despondent. She said that her husband had abused her and abandoned her. She was married to him secretly. She was also secretly pregnant. Um, so, but he gave screwy answers and he didn't give a good uh, uh, alibi either. He basically didn't have an alibi for the time in question. So it, early on, say up in you know the first week until Friday morning, both of these men were under equal suspicion pretty much. Uh, they both had had all the, the things there that made them look guilty and, and or at the very least very suspicious. Right. But they just to inter sorry to interrupt, but mm -hmm. they either one of them could be the person who was with her at the Blue Sea Cottage, right? Can you explain that whole 
situation, yeah. how the detectives found out about that. And the yeah, the, on Wednesday, a couple of days after they found her body, um, a a police a patrol cop who uh, was canvassing the the places around the La Jolla and Del Mar area. She had said that she was going to Del Mar to a house party, just that vague idea. But right before, uh, right after she had left home, she called her mother and then said, actually, it's going to be in La Jolla, which was a little, little closer, a little farther south, closer to San Diego, um, but still, you know, removed from San Diego at the time. And uh, on the coast, resort town, tourist area. So he was canvassing, this cop was canvassing the uh, resorts and the cottages. La Jolla was becoming known for these tourist cottages. And he was canvassing all these places to see if anyone had checked in there on the night of her death because they were trying to put together a timeline. Where was she? You know, they couldn't find that she had actually met anybody early on. So where was she? Where was this house party? Did she go to a house party? All of this was up in the air. So they were looking at places where a house party might have happened or where she might have gone with somebody. And they finally discovered a place called the Blue Sea Cottages on Wednesday. And this was a group of cottages uh, that were used mostly for tourists. And uh, this was in January. So they weren't all that many tourists, but there were some because San Diego tends to be nice even in January. And um, but they found out that um, the police, when they started doing investigation, found out that Fritzy had, in fact, shown up there on Sunday evening, a few hours after she had left home and with a man and they verified that it was Fritzy and that they had stayed in this particular cottage, cottage number 33. And they found some of her articles in there. It looked like the bed had been used slightly. The tub had been used. And so there were some indications that this, the, that they had actually been there for some period of time. But according to the manager, um, he, um, they weren't there very long, just a few hours. And when he, you know, when he went out making his rounds late that evening, the car was gone and the place was dark and looked like they were gone. So, uh, so he had checked in, he uh, and Fritzy had checked in and he had signed the, the register as Mr. And Mrs. Johnston, LA from Los Angeles. And so the, the search, it was a pseudonym and, the search was then on for the mysterious Mr. Johnson um, from then on. That became, after they found out where she had been that evening, that became the next big thing as far as the investigation goes. So who was he? Well, the although the manager had identified Fritzy's body right away as the woman, he was very wishy-washy on the guy, Uh the initial description he gave could have been Dr. Jacobs. Uh, he said that in the face, he looked kind of like Clark, but Clark was six foot three. So it couldn't have been him. He wasn't nearly that tall. He was like five foot nine or something. So, you know, but he was wishy-washy and he refused to say whether either one of them was the guy. Well, in the meantime, uh, the police eliminated Clark as a suspect, the actor. And that left Dr. Jacobs. And then they started concentrating their search on the Los Angeles area where Fritzy had spent most of the previous two months. 
So what was she doing up there? That was the, the big thing. Who was Mr. Johnson and what was she doing up in L.A. all that time? And did it have anything to do with her death? Because her mother said she was acting strangely from the time she returned from L.A. for the week until she died. So, uh, so they started looking into that. And it turns out that she had stayed with a friend of hers in Long Beach, which is a suburb of, of L.A., just south of L.A., for about a week. And then she had moved on and was staying in a hotel, um, the Rosalind Hotel, downtown Los Angeles. And there were some indications that she had performed at one or two places down there during uh, November, late November, early December of 1922. But then when her friend, her name was Bernice Edwards, came from uh, Los uh Long Beach to visit Fritzy at the Rosalind Hotel. This was in later on in December. She found Fritzy at this time about three months pregnant or three and a half months pregnant of sick and despondent. And basically she wasn't performing at this time. She was too sick to perform and was not in good shape. And so she decided finally to return to LA. Well, it comes out, I'm sorry, to San Diego. Because it turns out at Bernice Edwards' house after Fritzy's death, the, the police found amongst her effects she had left there a series of correspondence, letters, telegrams between her and Dr. Jacobs, uh, the man who was the doctor uh, at a VA hospital back in San Diego. And according to her friends, she was in love with Dr. Jacobs and Although they initially, you know, Bernice Edwards said, I claimed to not know that she was pregnant. She did, in fact, know. She was just trying to protect her friend's reputation. But, you know, it came out at the uh, the autopsy anyway. Right. I mean, and there's a lot more to this story. And there's pictures of Edwards in your book. She's dressed to the nines for that time. It's like yeah. very stamping that time and place and uh, culture yeah. right there. I mean... We've only covered a third of the book, if that. I mean, there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more discoveries and things like that. I mean, what would you uh, advise the listener? Like, the next step, your book is available. Uh, what, how would you like to end this? Like, do you want to add anything? Or is there anything I missed? I would like to add that not only is this, a, a you know, an unsolved mystery uh, from a very fascinating period in our time, uh, our history, but it's also a story about her and her family. Uh, how they came here for a better life. But there were a series of tragedies, starting with the father's death and Fritzy's death. And then her sister died shortly after that uh, from tuberculosis. So it was a, it ended in a nightmare. So the story is also about that. And it's very much about the time and place because uh, all of the things that I cover in there is whether you're talking about the prohibition corruption that was rampant at the time, the Hollywood influence, the fact that Fritzy had Hollywood connections, um, you know, the yellow journalism, all of these things had a direct impact on the case. So I go into some of those things uh, throughout the book, uh, which, you know, it, it's part of the story to me. And it's it, it, all of those things had a direct impact on it. So you know, when the case finally went to trial with the corruption and, and all of that and right. the way it was covered. So it's a lot more than just an unsolved mystery. It's a narrative nonfiction book that covers other themes. Right. And, and you can, uh, yeah. 
And your culture, you input the culture of that time, just like you said. Really fascinating. Where's the best place to get mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage? Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at a lot of local places, uh, local, uh, at least in San Diego, uh, uh, independent bookstores here through. Uh, I also have a link to IndieBound, which is a service that is involved with uh, indie bookstores, if you prefer to, to go that route. I have a website. It's James Stewart Author, all one word, dot com. And I have links to my social media as well as Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound. And, and people can products. contact you there if they have any additional questions or anything like that, right? Correct. There's a link there uh, with my uh, email. Your email and everything. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the interview. Really fascinating. Again, the title of the book is Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage, A True Story of Murder in San Diego's Jazz Age. And the author is James Stewart. So, James, thank you so much. Thank you, William. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Stay there. Stay there. All right. That was perfect. So.